All right. Uh, if you have your Bible or electronic device, turn to Mark chapter 7. And uh, in Mark chapter 7 today, the emphasis on the theme is Jesus confronting hypocrites there, which at that time were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and uh, the priests. And so, in today's lesson, you know, they're going to come to Jesus and they're going to ask him a loaded question about why he's not religious, why he doesn't succumb to the same rituals and traditions that they have that make them look religious, right? And he's going to uh, really let them have it in a very strong way. And it's interesting, um, he's going to call them hypocrites. And uh, researching this, I found that uh, Jesus literally invented the current definition of hypocrisy or hypocrites. And by that I mean the original, first time we ever find the word is in Greek. And the Greek tragedies, the actors would wear a mask. And they were known as hypocrites. Uh, the Greek word hypo means under. So they were under the mask or they were under uh, an assumed role. And uh, it wasn't an insult then. They were just actors. It would be like saying the actors, you know, in the play, the hypocrites. Uh, at Jesus, though, uh, used the word. Remember, the New Testament's written in Greek. Jesus used the word uh, in order to describe someone, the Pharisees, who outwardly looked one way, but inwardly was different. So it was really became uh, a great analogy or metaphor for who the Pharisees and the religious leaders really were. They were like actors in a play. What they said and what they claimed to be was not at all what was inside of them. And so Jesus is going to show them up in a big way in today's story. So you're going to have this interaction. You've got two sections in chapter 7. The first one is the interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees. It's really a confrontation, and he's really going to lay into them. Uh, and it's going to come down to the contrast of tradition or truth. Jesus is on the side of the truth, and the Pharisees have made up these religious traditions that make them look good to other people. And the other contrast, of course, is hypocrisy and heartfelt sincerity. Do you really mean what you're saying and doing, or is it just for appearances? And, of course, they were just for appearances. They were into a big show and everything that they did in order to impress people. Uh, and Jesus was saying what's important to God is sincere worship from the heart. So two different things. Um, and in the second section... Uh, beginning in verse 14, is Jesus teaching the crowd, and then after the crowd, his own close disciples, exactly what uh, happened in this confrontation with the Pharisees and what it means uh, to them and also to us as well. So uh, what, their, what their issue with Jesus is going to be in chapter 7 is about the tradition that they had developed that goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Moses uh, gave them a command in Exodus 30. You can see it up here on the screen. And this had to do with the priests only. It begins with his brother, Aaron. And uh, Aaron's sons were the priests at that time. And, of course, it would go on to the other priests. And he says, uh, 
when you're doing the ceremonies at the temple, I want you to do a cleansing ceremony. So you shall have a laver, which is a big, you know, container uh, with water for washing, specific water for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, you know, when they were doing the sacrifices, and you shall put water in it, and Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And it was to be a ceremonial type cleansing so that when they came to give the offering to the Lord, you know, they, you know, were ceremonially had clean hands. But it was for the priests only. Well, the Pharisees saw this big show at the temple, and they thought, you know, that's pretty cool. And all the people see that, and they think, boy, those, are, those priests are holy. Look, you know, they got the holy water and everything. So they developed their own tradition that they would do this before they ate every meal. And they would do it in public. And so they would make sure and have adequate supplies of water. Anytime they were at a banquet or outside, you know, private quarters, they would go through these ceremonies of washing their hands. And they would hold their hands up and they would pray and then they would have somebody pour uh, buckets of this water, this supposed to be holy water, over their hands and then they would hold their hands down and they'd pour more and then they would scrub their hands. It was just a huge show, right? So that everybody around would see them going through this. Boy, those are the holy men, you know. Well, Jesus didn't do that stuff. And his disciples didn't either. And so they're going to come up and confront Jesus and say, why do you and your disciples don't follow our traditions of washing before eating? And again, he's not saying don't wash your, Jesus is not going to say don't wash your hands before meals. That's, that has nothing to do with this. Uh, this is like a ceremonial cleansing type uh, command that Moses gave and only for the priests as they did their work there at the temple. But the Pharisees liked, loved the way it looked. And that's what they were all about was looks, you know, the appearances. They wanted people to look at them and say, wow, those guys are something else, right? Those are some religious guys. And so Jesus was going to uh, really... Uh, it, just, you know, he was going to show them up for what they really were. And I think it's a very important issue to us today as well, especially with the coming of the new covenant. Because the new covenant, the old covenant, was all about keeping laws, and, uh, and the new covenant was all about grace. Uh, so the grace of God and how you receive that, and etc. So uh, just in the Old Testament, you know, uh, it was always about what was in your heart. Uh, when Saul went to anoint David, if you remember the story in 1 Samuel 16, the first thing Samuel saw was David's brothers who were big and strong. David was only about 13 or 14 years old, kind of a ruddy kid. And he saw his big brothers and he went, that must be him, you know. And God said, no, that's not him. And he went all the way down. He had seven brothers, David did. And each one, God said, that's not him. And he said, well, it can't be this kid here. And that's where God said, here's the problem. What, what happened to 16, 1 Samuel 16? We may have had the wrong, whoops, that's the wrong one. The Lord looks at the heart. Okay, I'm sorry. The Lord looks at the heart. I was looking at the bottom deal. And so what he, you know, God was telling uh, Samuel was, don't look at the appearances only, not the biggest, strongest, or best looking or anything. Uh, God looks at the heart, and that's why I have chosen 
David. Um, what else we got? In Isaiah 1, uh, the prophet, this is 700 years before Christ, uh, the prophet Isaiah came to the people of Israel, and specifically the leadership in Israel in Jerusalem, and this is basically his message from God. God said through Isaiah, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Has any, any minister in your church ever done that, ever said that? We don't want your money. No, but God is saying, if you don't bring your offering, your money, with the right heartfelt attitude, I don't want it. I don't want it. So God said, bring your worthless offerings no longer. You're all hypocrites. You all come and say you believe, but then you go commit all these crimes. Incense, they burned incense there at the temple in their prayers, and it was to symbolize their prayers going up to God. And they said, don't even bother that anymore. That's a joke to me. All the uh, festivals and the Sabbath celebrations, calling everybody together, I can't put up with it anymore because I know it's all a lie. Verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts become a burden. I'm, I'm sick of it. Y'all coming together to do all this stuff and act like you're real religious when you're not in your heart. And in verse 15, even when they pray, God knows their heart and is rotten. So he says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So I know who you really are. And it doesn't matter how many prayers you say, I know what's in your heart is what God is saying. Uh, and so it's very clear in the Old Testament that these rituals and the outward works that they were doing uh, and the traditions that they developed meant nothing to God. And of course, nothing means nothing to Jesus. See? So Jesus looks at these people and he knows their heart is hard and, and does not believe in him, does not, do not believe in God, and they just go through all this religious tradition and he looks at them and says, you hip hypocrites, you hypocrites. Uh, Matthew 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, he told his disciples, don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees. Because when they bring their offerings to the temple, they blow trumpets and they get everybody's attention while they put their money in there so everybody will see how much money they give. Or when they pray... They pray out loud in the streets and in public so everybody can hear their wonderful prayers. Don't be like the hypocrites. And if you wondered what Jesus thought the end of the hypocrites were, in Matthew 23, right before the crucifixion, he lays into it and he says, Woe to you, by the way, here's a tip, woe is not good. You do not want woe said to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So they buried uh, their, their family, their dead, you know, in the side of a mountain. You know, they'd hew out uh, an opening and they'd put them in there. So uh, then they would put a stone up against it and they would paint the outside of it white you know, looking real clean and everything. But everybody knew inside there, what was there? Rotting bodies, rotten. And that's what Jesus is saying, using that 
analogy to describe what they are. You hypocrites outside, you look great. You know, they had uh, great clothes and some really cool hats they wore, and, and they did all this religious stuff. But Jesus knows what's inside of them, and he just rips them to pieces. Yeah, there's some of the cool hats. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's not going to put up with them in front of a crowd telling him that he's not keeping their traditions, that they're basically just man-made stuff that they came up with. Because, as I said before, it was a big show. It was a big show, and that's all they cared about. And then if you wondered uh, if, you know, the, I've had people say, well, do you think the Pharisees were saved or not? Well, these particular ones, uh, Jesus finished Matthew 23 by saying, how shall you escape the fires of hell? Meaning you're going to hell. I mean, there's no other clearer way to say it. Jesus said all these guys, these religious hypocrites, were going to hell. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, after he exposed them in Matthew 7, he said, all you people have been calling God's name and using God's name in everything you do. When you come, I will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Uh, and so the main uh, opposition and the main villains in all the gospel accounts are the hypocrites. They're not really the people we think of as criminals like the prostitutes and the and the thieves, you know, the, the uh, tax collectors were literally thieves. They are extortionists and thieves. They weren't re they're not really vilified in these, these accounts. Because these people come, you know, they realize that they're sinners. And they come humbly before Jesus asking for forgiveness. Whereas these guys are acting like they need no forgiveness because they're self-righteous. They've got it all together and they do all this big show, Right? Uh, and so Jesus is going to rip these guys to pieces um, because they are hypocrites who swap their own tradition for God's actual commands. That's literally what they do. And these uh, traditions they go through are not a formula for holiness. They're just an outward show for people's approval. Not God's approval, people's approval. That's what it's all about. And then... Uh, after he lays into them, he's not just going to make that statement. He's going to prove that what he's saying is true by giving an example. He said, let me give you an example of what I mean here. And they had a practice called Corban, which in uh, Hebrew means uh, to give or to pledge. And you know how a lot of times you, you know, they really give you a sermon when you're at church. Our church doesn't do this, but I bet yours does. <laughs> About giving money, right? You know there's going to be several of those every year. I mean, they just, they got to have the money, right? And so they give you a sermon about money. And, and uh, I was even at one sermon one time where they said, you got to give till it hurts. Don't just give, give till it hurts. And I'm like, God, I don't want to do that. Uh, but he said, if you don't even have the money yet, I want you to take that pledge card and pledge it, right? So a lot of you probably have signed those pledge cards. And uh, that's basically what Corbin was. He said, sometime in the future, I'm going to give this to you. And so what the Pharisees had been doing, even though the fifth command of the, of the Ten Commandments, you can see Corbin was a shrewd religious loophole 
really, of setting aside property they claim we're going to give to God in order to claim they didn't have the wherewithal to care for their parents. So the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments said, you shall honor your father and mother. And Jesus was saying part of that is, you know, take care of them when they're elderly. But you're not doing that, and you're using, you've come up with this loophole saying, uh, all this money I got, well, I have promised to give it later, you know. And then, of course, they probably never gave it, knowing these guys. But they could claim not to have any money to give to their parents by uh, these pledges they were making. And Jesus exposed that. And he went on to say, and many other things like this you do to break the law. So look at the text with me. And the, look at chapter 7, verse 1 in Mark. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gather together around Jesus. They're up there in the Galilee. So they, they come up uh, from Jerusalem. They're actually down because Jerusalem's high and where the, the Galilee's low. They come down from Jerusalem to spy on him and to d- try to discredit him. And so they come down. And they saw, they'd seen what some of Jesus' disciples were eating their bread with impure hands. They didn't go through the cleansing ceremony, unwashed. They're ceremonially unclean then. And then he gives you an editorial comment to explain what the deal is in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders, not the law, the traditions that they had developed. They have no biblical basis whatsoever. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots, all these uh, rituals that they went through. All as a big show. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat their bread with impure hands. Why don't they do what we do and follow the traditions of our forefathers? And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, just as it is written. I think we got that uh, Isaiah 29 somewhere, don't we? Oh, it's, oh, it's, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, the... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So this is a prophecy, not only of the people in Isaiah's day, but for Israel going forward uh, during the time of Christ. This people, Israel, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now the word doctrine you know, it's a word that means uh, true teaching, correct teaching, right? And so what they're trying to do is take the stuff they made up, their traditions, and call it doctrine. That's, that's what they're attempting to do. And uh, Jesus is exposing them, saying this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah when he said, they are wasting their time worshiping me, God says. It means nothing, and they're even teaching as doctrines the stuff they made up. The traditions, the precepts of men. And as they do that, here's the core problem in verse 8. The core problem, they neglect the commandment of God 
And as they neglect the commandment of God, he says, you hold to the tradition of men. So God has commanded you a lot of commands, but you neglect those, but you keep your traditions. He was also saying to, also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corban, meaning already pledged. Sorry, I'd like to help you financially in your old age, but tough luck, you know, all my stuff's already pledged, you know. Yeah, but you still have it. Well, you know. <laughs> Corbin, that is to say, supposedly given to God, and Jesus is exposing this loophole. So you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. And so this is how they get out of, of doing that. And by doing that, verse 13, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. That's just one example. You guys do all kinds of stuff like this. So he exposed them. And now in verse uh, 14, he pivots to a new audience. He calls the crowd that's been following him. And most of this crowd is just there because of the miracles, you know. Uh, I'm sure we'd have done the same thing. You hear some guys up there healing everybody. And you got something wrong with you, you know, you need a knee replacement or hip replacement or whatever. Let's go see that guy, right? And so he had these huge crowds. Well, he pulls them all in to explain what just happened. Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. The new covenant of grace, the old covenant of laws, uh, which Israel couldn't keep, is now extinct. It's no more. Jesus has brought in the new covenant, the new covenant of grace. And, and in doing so, all of the ceremonial law that they had before that set them apart as a nation is thrown out. The only law that's kept in the covenant of grace is the moral law. So basically the Ten Commandments and all the other moral laws are still in effect for the church, for us, but all the ceremonial stuff like animal sacrifices, uh, the priesthood, all the different things like that were, were no more. I mean, why do you need to do animal sacrifice when Jesus has given a sacrifice of infinite value? His sacrifice was good for the forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future, for all sins, and never needs to be made again. So all that stuff, the pre that's, that was the main job of the priesthood is the animal sacrifices. So there's no longer a need for all these priests. There's no longer a need for the temple or for all the other ceremonial stuff that they did. It's basically out. And, of course, one of the big things that was given to Israel, going all the way back to Leviticus 11, was the eating laws. We call it kosher eating, right? Well, when they were in the wilderness, before they got to the promised land, this is after the exodus, they're in the wilderness, right? Before they go into the Canaanites, the Canaanites were the most evil per people on planet Earth. So God said, don't be like the Canaanites. Be separate from them. Don't have anything to do with them. Drive them out of the land because they'll corrupt you. 
And I don't want you to look like them, so I want you to cut your hair different. I don't want you to eat like them. These people are barbarians. The Canaanites drank blood. That was just a normal thing that they did. And God said in these kosher laws, you know, no more drinking blood. You drain the blood from the meat before you cook the meat. And he had all these other uh, laws that the Jews call kosher laws. And Jesus is now going to say they no longer apply. Because they were given to Israel for two reasons. One is health concerns. Like, you know, they're not supposed to eat pork. Well, pork, if you, we know now, has about a thousand times more bacteria than regular meat. And so it needs to be cooked longer. And you'd be more prone, you know, if you didn't cook it like they did back then, of, of getting sick from it. And so uh, a lot of the animals that were deemed, deemed uh, unclean or you're not to eat of those like pork are for health concerns. Uh, and then, of course, the second one is what I just said. He wanted them to be separate, distinct from the Canaanites. You're not to eat with them. You're not to eat like them. And you're to be holding a new, different standard that sets you apart as a nation. Well, once Jesus comes and Israel uh, rejects him and he turns to individuals, which, of course, ended with the uh, formation of the church, uh, it's no longer a nationalistic gospel that goes through Israel. Uh, now, after Jesus, it's an uh, international gospel for everybody. Whoever will believe in Christ and receive him as a Savior is now a part of the body of Christ. And so there's no longer any reason for Israel to be set apart like that, right? Uh, and so Jesus says, that's all kaput. You don't need any of that anymore. Now on you just eat whatever you want. And here's a good passage for that. Let's look at it beginning in verse 14. And after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, I'm going to tell you something important here. There's nothing outside the man, talking about food or unclean hands or anything else, which going into him can defile him, ceremonially, religiously. But it's the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. So what he says and what he does, that defiles him. But the stuff that goes in, and in verse 17, and when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house, his disciples said, we heard what you say out there. It sounded like you were saying that all the food, like pork and all these different things, that can't really make you defiled. We've, we've always been taught that it could. So Jesus says, okay, listen up, everybody. He gets his 12 guys in there, and he says, are you lacking in understanding also he always just punished them. And I don't think it's being mean. I think he's saying, this is how wrong you are. So you better listen to this because this is important. I think that's why he does this and speaks so strongly to them so they'll know how important it is. Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart. You know, the heart is that spiritual concept, spiritual term of the inner man, the soul, the spirit, is referred to as the heart. It doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach. 
And then anything that's unclean is eliminated, right? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus has changed things right here. Not in the new covenant anymore do we need to worry about what we eat. Because that's not what this is about. The new covenant is about belief and faith in your heart, in sincerity, believing in the Lord God through our Savior Jesus Christ. And so from now on, you don't have to worry about all this external stuff that they're all keeping now. And he went on to say, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the mouth, that is what defiles him. So what does he mean by that, which proceeds out? Well, he's going to give you 12 different things that are very typical and normal of the human race. He says, uh, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting. That's just simply desiring stuff that's not yours. Deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So that stuff comes out of your uh, mind and your heart, and that's what makes you unclean in God's view, right? So you need to get your heart and your mind right with God because he's not just interested in your outward actions. He wants to know what's in here. And God knows. God is omniscient. And he, he clearly knows. All right? So, uh, he goes on, and this is part of the same line of thought, beginning in verse 24. Uh, everything before this happened up there in the Galilee, in the area that was considered Israel. Now he goes out of Israel in verse 24. Again, he's going to blow up a boundary that Israel had had, which was a national one. Everything that God does, we are God's people, and everything comes through us. Now Jesus goes out of Israel to a different land a, of Phoenicia, which is thought of and known as a very evil place, a place of idolatry, paganism. And he goes up there to preach the gospel with his disciples. And now he wants his disciples to know that he is changing everything with this new covenant of grace. And so now the gospel is available to foreigners as, as well, to any individual in the whole world. So from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And that's a city uh, in Phoenicia right there on the coast. It's where Lebanon is right, right now. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, Yet he could not escape notice. You can see the map here. Um, and you can see Phoenicia up there uh, north and uh, west of the Galilee. So the, that area that you can see there known as the Galilee is where most of Jesus' ministry occurred. But in this story, he leaves that area that, that's under Israel's authority and goes up to uh, what's called Syrophoenicia up there on the coast. And he's going to want his disciples to understand that something different has happened through this story. So when he goes up there, he enters a house. He wanted no one to know of it, and yet he could not escape notice. So he wanted to kind of get around and talk to people and not have these huge crowds, but the word spread. 
And after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. So this is a Phoenician woman uh, considered by Jesus' disciples to be unclean because she wasn't Jewish. So they're uh, expecting Jesus to dismiss this woman and send her away. He knows that, of course, and he wants to teach them that those days are gone. So the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that sounds like a, a mean comment to be called a dog. Right? And that's what he's talking about, this woman. Uh, he says that because he knows that's what's in the mindset, the heart of his disciples. We didn't come, you know, the Messiah didn't come to minister and to heal these kind of people, you know. So tell her to go away. And Jesus is going to teach them. So Jesus purposely says this, knowing that that's what they're thinking. And look what happens. And he was saying to her, let the little children be satisfied. And she answered, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. Now, what did she do? She humbled herself. In her strong belief in Jesus, she was willing to humble herself, even though it was kind of an insult. It was an insult. Uh, Jesus didn't mean it that way, but he said it that way for his disciples to see uh, how important humility and faith is. Because when she says this, look at Jesus' reaction. He says to her, because of this answer, because you, answer, you answered me with such humility and belief, you go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. I will grant your request because of your belief and your humility. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon, demon having been or having departed. And so uh, the question is, can his disciples transfer the previous lesson on what makes a person clean or unclean, can they transfer that now to Gentiles, right? We, the student, are expected to do that. We're to see what Jesus did and where this is all going. So these people in here, y'all are much smarter than these people because you've got it figured out, right? And I say that because you're, you're supposed to be going, you know, you're going. Uh, so uh, Jesus, again, is teaching about the new covenant of grace, it's not about race. It's not about how you cleanse your hands. It's not about tradition or ritual. It's about believing in your heart in Jesus, God's provision for your sin. All right? Uh, I'm going to skip through. As you know, this is a 10-week uh, deal, and uh, there's 16 chapters. So today we're doing chapters 7, 8, and 9. All right? So, in chapter 8, you have a miracle that's very similar to the feeding of the 5,000. Somebody out there is going, he'll never be able to make it. Three chapters, he's only got 10 minutes left. 
Watch this. This miracle is very similar to the feeding of the 5,000 except for geography and the people that were there. So it's a different miracle, but it has all the same qualities and teaching tools of the one we did uh, last week. So I'll just refer to that. Now, the next chapter. Uh, actually, in chapter 8, verse 27. As he's going, as he's leaving and he's going back, he goes back to the very northern part of Israel. You can see it up there, way up there, Caesarea Philippi. See it at the very top? That is the tip. Even today, that's the very northern part of Israel, Caesarea Philippi. And when he gets there, he begins a whole new chapter in teaching. Before this, he's been teaching on a bunch of different things and, and the parables and about the new covenant and everything. But now, for about the next uh, year, he's going to be going very slowly from Caesarea Philippi back to Jerusalem. And he's going to begin a whole new line of teaching. It's going to be primarily about the crucifixion. Okay? So he begins this teaching with 8.27. He says, this is an important question. Everybody in here has got to answer this too. Jesus says, to uh, his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, verse 27 of chapter 8, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? That's a good question. You got these huge crowds, and you got different people. You know, you got uh, regular people, and you've got religious leaders, and you've got his close disciples. You got a lot of different people. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, others. One of the prophets. So all those had everything that they say like that has to do with being a prophet. So the people were basically saying, he's the prophet that God promised. He's a good prophet. Uh, so that's a good thing, right? It's a very positive and a good thing. But what are they leaving out? He's the son of God. He's more than just a prophet. He's the son of God. He's God in the flesh. Deity in the flesh. See? So he turns to Peter and the, and the uh, disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And since they're more in the know, and they've seen more and had more teaching, you certainly expect them to have a better grasp on who Jesus is, and you'd be right. Peter looks at him and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. What did he just say? The Christ is the Greek word for the anointed one of God. So he is the anointed one of God sent into the world to save us of our sin. And the Son of God implies deity. You're God in the flesh. And so they got a pretty good grasp on who Jesus is. And Peter here gets an attaboy. Everybody wants an attaboy, right? Way to go, Peter. You're right on, man. Uh, he says... How strong an attaboy is it? I mean, this is awesome. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but the Spirit of God. What you just said, Peter, was a spiritual thing that you cannot know on your own. Now, if you're reading along, some of the things I'm saying also come from Matthew. So if anything I said isn't included in Mark, go refer to Matthew and put, put them together. As Matthew gives you a few more details. 
He's the one that says, uh, says that Peter says you're the Christ, the Son of God, adds the Son of God to it. Um, and also the part about, you know, uh, flesh and blood didn't explain this to you, but the Spirit of God, and it also in Matthew's account has the part, you know, where uh, he says, upon this rock I will build my church. All that's there in Matthew, and I don't think it's in Mark here. So, Peter gets an attaboy, but just five seconds later, what happens? Jesus began to teach. This is where he begins to teach about the crucifixion. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's his messianic title, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, that blows their mind. Wait a minute. You called us to follow you. We gave up everything. We gave up our business, our family. We've been traveling around with you all this time. We thought you were the one that's going to set up the kingdom. And now you're talking about getting crucified? So Peter, who's always the impetuous one, steps up and says, that ain't going to happen. You, know, you don't know how tough I am. I'm not going to let anybody take you. I've given up too much. And since he is actually trying to prevent Jesus from saving mankind, which is God's will, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he went from the prize pupil to the dunce cap in the corner. And why? Because just like us, he just didn't understand the big picture. Jesus was saying, I have to be crucified to redeem mankind. I can't set up a kingdom of God full of sinners. i got to do something about sin first. So it has to happen. So get behind me, Satan. And then uh, Jesus gives some great teaching that, that goes right along with that and says, if you want to follow me, you've got you've to embrace that crucifixion. And that's what he means by saying, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And he goes on to say, whoever wishes to save his life, you want to save my life? Anybody who wishes to save their life in that way, contrary to the will of God, shall lose it. You'll die physically. But whoever will die for my sake will gain everything. But what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And then in chapter 9 here, you have uh, what's known as, and you've heard of it, as the transfiguration. Right after this, who do you say that I am? And his teaching about self-denial. Jesus goes up on the mountain. It would be Mount Carmel, which is up there by uh, Caesarea Philippi. It's just to the uh, west of it. It's the highest point in the Middle East. It's like 9,500 feet. They go up on the mountain, and he takes Peter and James and John, the, kind of the inner circle of the disciples, and you have the transfiguration. They see Jesus in his glorified state. And they hear the voice of God. And what does he say? This is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him about what? About what he's teaching you about being, you know, having to be rested and being crucified. So, the, the transfiguration, you know, it's, it's a lot of reasons God did that and point to it. First, uh, it, uh, it guarantees 
Peter's confession and also what Jesus taught, Jesus' prediction. Also, uh, we have Jesus teaching on the passion that he's going to continue to do, and they're going to refer back to that. He's going to give them the assurance of his return in glory. He's going to guarantee resurrection and the kingdom to them, and then they get to hear the word of God, which confirms everything that he's been teaching. Right? So let me wrap this up, these three chapters, uh, and go back to, to that question, because this is the important question for all of us, right? Who, who is this guy? Jesus. He's got such wisdom. He can crush the, the Pharisees, and any they're supposed to be the really smart guys. He crushes them in every argument. So we have all these various views as we've gone through all these stories. First view, the crowds. If the crowds come, what do they see about who Jesus is? They have a favorable view of him. He's a prophet. But they're kind of also thinking he's a political military leader as a prophet. Uh, secondly, the Pharisees see him as a pawn of Satan. Remember when he does that miracle a couple of chapters ago, the unforgivable sin? They said, what you're doing, you do by the power of Satan, the adversary of God. Well, they're clearly wrong. What about his own brothers? What was their view? Yeah, he's out of his mind. He's a lunatic. We've got to get him back to the house before he gets you know, arrested. Plus, he's making our family look bad, right? Citizens from his hometown of Nazareth. Remember when he went to Nazareth and he went in the synagogue and he got up and read from Isaiah and he said, this has been fulfilled in me. I'm the Messiah. And they went, what? This guy grew up down the street. He's a carpenter. He's not even a good one. Put our kitchen cabinets in. They were crooked. So they just think, it can't be him. He's just a regular guy from Nazareth. And then, of course, finally, Peter and the disciples say, you are the anointed one from God. You are the son of God. But they don't yet realize that he's also the suffering servant. The suffering servant who's going to be crucified. He's going to be a substitute for us. He's going to take all of our sin upon him in the crucifixion and give us back righteousness. We're going to be forgiven and declared righteous by God based on what Jesus does on the cross. That's the whole Jesus, right? And as you look around the world today, it, everybody thinks a lot of Jesus and his uh, teachings. You know, you think that the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists all have uh, hatred for Jesus. Not at all. They love the guy. And they love his teaching. The uh, Islam, the Muslims, see Jesus as a prophet in Islam. The Hindus, like Mahatma Gandhi, he based his whole philosophy and everything he did on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves Jesus. I mean, how, how can you not love, you know, love your brother and, and the golden rule and all these things, Right? The ones they don't like are the Christians. <laughs> and rightfully so a lot of times, right? Uh, because of our actions or because of our hypocrisy or because of professing Christians' wrong view of who Jesus is. 
You need to have the whole view of Jesus. He's not just some moral teacher. He's not just some prophet. Not just the Son of God. He's also a Savior who died on the cross for me. And by believing in His name, you must be saved. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and these stories that reveal so much about Jesus and also about human nature. And I pray that we would all be convicted about who exactly that Jesus is. And in his name we pray, amen. Thank you. <laughs>